0: of the Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes, Ms. Moblecker. I am very pleased to welcome you all to this webinar on technology and hate speech, Friend of foe. This is the second panel of the Decoding Hate Speech online series. The Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, MIX, and the Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes, GAMAC, are organizing to bring together leading voices to discuss the linkages between hate speech, technology, and atrocity prevention. Today's panel will address the complexity of online hate speech with an informed and multi-party approach to prevent the harmful effects of big tech on human rights and develop strategies to make technologies work for the benefits of our societies. Today's Distinguished panelists are Savita Pounday, the Deputy Executive Director of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect, Christopher Togwood, the Executive Director of the Sentinel Project, Ms. Metali Jain, the Legal Director at Avaz and International Human Rights Lawyer. Kyle Matthews, the Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, MIX will moderate the event. We hope you will find the discussion useful. And please do use the chat function to engage with one another and ask questions to our distinguished panelists. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Helena.
2: Um, Hello, everyone. Once again, I'm Kyle Matthews from the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Rights Studies. Uh, We're really pleased today for my colleagues at MIGS um, here in Canada to collaborate with GEMAC. This is the second Session of our um, virtual uh, discussion series on uh, hate and incitement to hate and and hate speech. Um, As you know, uh, the last session was really an interesting one. We had uh, um, General Romeo Dallaire that talked about his views of hate speech from the Ronin genocide to today, discussing how new technologies were changing um, the way that the atrocity prevention community should. Um, prevent atrocities and particularly uh, hate speech. Uh, we also had two experts, one from the office of the UN uh, Office for the Prevention of Genocide, and the other one from the OSCE, the Office for Democracy and Human Rights. So we really had a really interesting discussion um, on all these issues, with particularly a regional and mul- multilateral perspective. Um, and and I think really touching upon that, and what we're going to go into today is a bit is is about. The tech side of dealing with hate speech, because we really have um, seen um, a revolution in the digital space, and this has changed everything um, for people working in this space. I think it's interesting. And we would remind you that the UN um, Secretary General, supported with the UN Office for Prevention of Genocide, has created. Um, a framework for hate speech. So there's now uh, something that's developing at the multilateral level that we can take and work on both uh, domestically in our own countries, but also in our regions of the world. Um, And one thing that came out of the last session was that there really was um, a a notice, though, that there still is not um, a universal definition of hate speech. Um, We're trying to build one, but, but much like the definition of terrorism, that there is no universal definition, so so we're struggling with that, and that's something that we need to keep in mind. Um, and today's session is really uh, taking the HB side to really talk about emerging technologies, about, about what that means, what are the opportunities, what are the challenges, what's the role of the gamat community um, in this space. And I would just, um, before we go into a QA and, and I'm going to ask directed questions to each of our, our panelists before we uh, turn to the audience for questions, But we did, or actually not we, but Gamac ran a a poll online uh, for everyone who registered. And we asked um, in this poll who should be held accountable for regulation of hate speech on social media. And it's quite interesting. Um, um, The first answer 50% of respondents said that big tech companies um, are the ones that should shoulder uh, most of the responsibility. A further 25% stated that it should be. National governments, um, almost thirteen percent said it should be users, individual users, on social media, and then approximately thirteen percent said it's all of the above—that all three actors, government, private sector, and and users, individual users, have a responsibility. So we're going to delve into these questions. Um, they're they're very complex, and they're also on top of the policy agenda. This is something that. I think around the world, we have people, many bright minds trying to look at and trying to come up with a solution. So that's the broader context of our past discussion and the ones we're going to have today. Um, I would like to start off first. um, I have a directed question for Christopher Tuckwood. Um, Chris, who's from the Sentinel Project and runs something called HateBase. Um, Chris, um, I'd like to ask you, what role do social media platforms and technology play in the online incitement to violence?
3: Sure, thanks. So that's a that's a pretty big question uh, to cover in you know the roughly five minutes uh, that I've got, but I'll do my best. I think from our view, the way that we look at these things, it's important to remember that hate speech, and you know related sort of phenomena are fundamentally human problems not necessarily technological problems so obviously technology is influential in how that that behaves but the content itself and the human motivations behind it are not fundamentally different when we're looking at online from offline there there are a lot of differences still in terms of the dynamics that we see online versus offline uh, probably you know a lot more than we can really get into in detail here but i would say one really key one as far as we're we're concerned in our work is the difference that we see in the scale and nature of the dissemination of hate speech. So, you know, in in the past, uh, we would see uh, this sort of thing emanate, you know, maybe from major uh, major media outlets, uh, perhaps government controlled, perhaps not. I'm sure we can all think of really notable uh, examples from history, like the Rwandan genocide or in Nazi Germany and that sort of thing. The use of radio, but but at that time, promoting hate speech and inciting violence uh, really, on that scale at least, really required um, institutional, be it private sector or public sector, it really required institutional uh, infrastructure and resources. Now we're in a situation where basically anyone, Uh, with, you know, as little as a a relatively cheap mobile phone and uh, an Internet connection can uh, produce harmful content and reach a a potentially really large audience that doesn't even respect uh, national boundaries. And that's that's a fundamental fundamental change. Basically, anybody now can be not just a consumer of this dangerous content, but also a producer of it and an inciter of violence. Um, so, you know, that clearly means that the scale of the problem now can be much greater in the past, uh, an individual who harbors, let's say, uh, hateful tendencies and perhaps even, you know, incipient, uh, violent tendencies, um, based along these kinds of lines who lives in a community where maybe not a lot of other people share, um, their views, uh, their views in terms of physical proximity can now... Easily find other people online all around you know their country or the world um, with whom they can find basically common cause. So that's a that's a big thing, and it makes it a lot harder to shut down because there's no single point of origin for this uh, this content. You know, like a radio station or a newspaper or something like that. Um, however, there are positive aspects of technology since, and I think this is something that we'll get into a little bit later on, but. Uh, one of those positive aspects is that it enables enhanced monitoring and counter messaging. So just like the people on the sort of uh, on the negative side of the spectrum are able to um, do things, do bad things, to put it simply, on a much larger scale, uh, people who are aiming to counter those kinds of narratives and its negative impacts are also able to do things on a larger scale. So we have the potential now, to better understand how this is happening, um, because you know, just to use the probably most prominent example of, of Twitter, the majority of this kind of content is circulating in a, a very transparent public forum, uh, where anyone with uh, relatively accessible tools can monitor that on a on a pretty large scale, and ideally then use that to inform some kind of response, whether it be online counter messaging or, um, you know. It, influencing uh, policy decisions, whether that's at the corporate level or or the government level. Just as I I wrap up uh, my comments, I I think it's also really important, and this is something Kyle that we've brought up uh, or I've brought up in other conversations we've had before. It's really important to recognize the relationship between hate speech and uh, misinformation. We often talk about these two things as separate, uh, more or less unrelated phenomena but I think if you made a Venn diagram of the two there would be a lot of overlap in in the middle there's a lot of misinformation that is uh, you know hateful in nature especially if it's been intentionally created uh, and there's a lot of hate speech that obviously um, and we can all think of examples I'm sure maybe get into some examples later on uh, that definitely uh, you know relies upon sharing false information to push a certain hateful narrative uh, I'll I'll just end with a sort of analogy that we often use here, which is to say that hate speech uh, loads the gun, but misinformation pulls the trigger when it comes to hate speech setting sort of the stage or the atmosphere for hateful attitudes to arise, but then misinformation often presenting the perception of threat that can push things over into actual offline physical violence. Thank you, Chris. Um, I like that analogy. you mentioned
2: it to, uh, to us in another discussion before, and it stuck with me. Um, and I think it's also really important that you said um, that uh, that individuals can access, before in the past, it was governments that could take control of traditional media and really use it to fan the flames of hate or, or to uh, dehumanize a certain group. And, and now, as you said, an individual now has that power, which I think is, um, is what... Um, what we're seeing, but also an individual also has the ability to counter that online. So, so it, it's, it's complex. So I'm going to um, now move to our next guest. Uh, I have a question for uh, Savita. Um, Savita, um, how does online hate speech escalate to offline violence, and who plays a leading role in fomenting this online hate and incitement to violence?
4: Thank you, Kyle, and thank you to the organizers for um, putting up this really important discussion. Um, I mean, and that's a really interesting question, and coming from where I come from, and uh, that is, you know, working on atrocity prevention, um, hate speech is, is an important uh, risk factor. Hate speech, uh, I mean, there definitely exists a correlation between hate speech and commission of atrocity crimes. And this correlation becomes more significant if hate speech and inflammatory rhetoric against certain populations is propagated by political leaders, religious leaders, people with celebrity who have political and social capital. The more hate speech is employed by political and religious leaders, the more it becomes. Part of the mainstream and creates a permissive and a toxic environment where calls for violence against the hated group become normalized. Um, generally, hate speech marginalizes a particular group and depicts them as a threat. This can then mobilize the majority or other groups to take action to defend themselves um, from the perceived threat on their culture, economic, well-being, or religion, et cetera. It can encourage perpetrators to demonstrate their loyalty and willingness uh, to defend their community by engaging in violence. And if there are triggering events, such as elections, uh, it can lead to commission of atrocity. So that's the relationship. Um, and as you know, Chris mentioned before, and and so did you, that some of the darkest periods in the in our history are preceded by discriminatory public discourse and demonization of certain groups, and you know who have been spreading um, fear among populations to justify atrocities, and that's the case with the Holocaust, starting with the Holocaust. To Sabronica, to, to Rwanda. So hate speech as such is a new, not a new phenomena. But as Chris said, it's the, and also David Kay, it's it's not that it is a new phenomena, it's that the rate of dissemination is just unparalleled um, and then we have seen uh, before. And, and just to give you a few examples of making this relationship, this relationship between hate speech, dangerous speech, uh, to atrocity crimes. Um, So for example, in Myanmar, discriminatory policies targeting the Rohingya populations were in place for decades. Um, This discrimination did more than just martialize the Rohingya. It stigmatized the group as being outsiders or foreigners. The lack of accountability for those with influence who expressed dangerous anti-Rohingya and anti-Muslim sentiments through social media platforms, especially senior Buddhist religious leaders, um, established over time an environment that was permissive to hate speech and violence against the Rohingya. So, and and finally, that led to you know the culmination of that was ethnically cleansing Rohingya from uh, Myanmar in 2017. Um, We are seeing that in Cameroon, where there has been a long-standing history of hate speech inciting violence. Since 2017, Cameroon has seen a uptake in hatred and inflammatory rhetoric in the context of the intensifying crisis between the francophone and the anglophone communities. And since 2016, over 3,000 people and hundreds of security forces have lost their lives. Um, Hate speech was a a determining factor in the violence that preceded preceded in 2013. in South Sudan. Uh, In the past, the Commission of Inquiry on Burundi shed light on the prevalence of hate speech in Burundi, uh, particularly by the ruling party and and its partners, stating that such rhetoric, which frequently targets specific ethnic groups, reinforced human rights abuses. So, but this is not only true of, you know, countries which are um, dealing with um, crisis or are in the midst of a conflict. I mean, I come from India and um, in in February this year, India saw some of one of the worst communal violence it has seen in Delhi um, and in in India for over a decade. Um, And and that was preceded by a huge amount of hate speech, which was propagated by the ruling political party, by BJP leaders um, themselves. What we are seeing in the U.S. is also really concerning. I mean, it is being a very critical factor in further polarizing the debate. Um, the same thing in Europe. I mean, it's it's political leaders um, from Netherlands to France. I mean, you're seeing a rise of uh, right-wing political parties in Hungary, and, and it's, it's the It's the political uh, establishment in most of these countries uh, for political gains, which is propagating um, more and more hate speech, dangerous speech speech indulging in it. And, and, and we see the result. And on top of all of this, there's another layer now of what is happening with COVID-19 and this has created um, another layer of discrimination for marginalized or minority groups, which are being targeted as, spreaders of the disease, Um, and it has, you know, deeply affected their ability to access um, medical medical care to be uh, able to have a voice in public discourse. So, I mean, that's where the correlation exists, and that's how hate speech sort of spills into uh, our offline lives, so to speak. Thank you, Savita. That was a
2: a detailed response, Um, and I, I, I really liked how you at the end that you you really portray this as a global issue. Um, You mentioned not just India, not just the US, not just uh, Myanmar, but but some of the emerging uh, far right political figures in Europe. So this this does, I think, um, make us all or bring out the point that this is a global issue and we need to be collaborating uh, on this as, uh, and try to confront it as a global issue. Um, I would now like to turn and we're gonna turn to our next guest, uh, uh, Mitali Jain, who works for uh, uh Mitali, great to have you with us. I'd like to ask you um, in your view and of the work what Avaz does, what, what can be done to counter online hate and disinformation?
1: Thank you, Kyle, and thank you to the organizers. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, I just wanted to situate Avaaz for those who may not uh, know what we do. We are a uh, global civic movement of over 65 million members, and we campaign democratically based on what the members think are the most important issues for us to campaign on. So for the last three years, we've been campaigning on issues of disinformation and hate precisely because we see that these issues really are at the root of campaigning for any other issue. So whether it be climate change, whether it be protecting democracies around the world, whatever the issue is, disinformation and hate really sit at the foundation. Um, And so to address the broader issues, we need to be able to contend with these issues. Um, in it, To your question, um, Kyle, I think right now we're in a situation where the only kind of regulation that's occurring is self-regulation on part of social media platforms. And as Chris and Savita have pointed out, there is a fluidity fluidity of speech and expression that doesn't necessarily correspond to the categories that these social media platforms use to uh, develop their policies and and, and to enforce uh, either the removal of content or other kinds of friction that are uh, that are introduced to these platforms, and so I think I think Chris's caution is a very important one that we should not kind of stay within the contours of what companies describe as hate speech or as being violative of community standards, because indeed, there's a, there is a there is that fluidity, there's that spectrum, and a lot of what would be considered misinformation, um, and even, and this is where I would like to import the, the framework that's been developed by Susan Binesh at the Dangerous Speech Project, the idea of dangerous speech, you know, speech that is more likely to incite violence as a distinct category, it's important to kind of look across these categories and to try to understand what can be done um, and not simply rely on the companies and their definitional uh, standards of of the different speech. Um, And so, you know, on that front, I mean, I I think in respect of uh, what is traditionally by the companies considered to be hate speech, Uh, there's a simple kind of, uh, well, seemingly simple kind of response, which is that, you know, we need to really encourage platforms to enforce their policies on community standards. Um, At Oz, we have conducted a number of investigative reports that look into the prevalence of hate speech, that look into the prevalence of disinformation, and so forth on the platforms. And what we see time and time again is that there there is a vast... Uh, kind of mass of content that technically should be removed or should be downgraded or should be corrected and is not being um, so it's it's basically platforms are not following their own policies I think that's the first thing to say um, the second thing to say in respect of uh, hate speech is in regards to artificial intelligence we uh, I was involved with a investigation of hate uh, speech and disinformation in the Indian context last year. And this very much goes to what Savita was saying. Uh, This was preceding the nationwide uh, riots uh, and protests that occurred uh, at the end of last year and, and in the beginning of this year in Delhi. And we were looking specifically in regards to a citizenship count process in the northeastern state of Assam in India. And what we found was just astounding. Um, and what was uh, the the platform's lack of response was even more astounding. Not only d- were there no content moderators uh, who could speak Assamese, the local language, um, but the AI was absolutely unequipped to be able to detect the kind of hate that we were seeing, which was really of the genocidal variety that we've seen uh, and and has been talked about a lot in Myanmar. And what we understood from that is that because the machine learning is trained from content flagged by native speakers, if you have native speakers who are being targeted by this hate, who either don't have access uh, to plat- who don't have access to social media or who lack the knowledge to understand how flagging tools work in effect, the, the machine learning is going to be completely uh, unequipped to be able to deal with this kind of hate speech. And then if you don't have content moderators who are able to, to speak the language, and importantly, to understand the local context, I think that's that's critical in, in thinking about atrocity prevention and hate speech, that we need people who really understand the richness of the local context to be able to make these content moderation decisions. So the AI really needs to be. Uh, is strengthened, and that more thought needs to go into how that how that should happen. Also, uh, in our report, we talked about the development of an early warning system. Um, you know, often what we have found is that the platforms respond in a kind of reactive whack-a-mole approach, where we, you know, civil society will bring something to them, and then. Kind of begrudgingly and belatedly they'll take things down. We really advocated for an early warning system to be put into place where uh, a number of different stakeholders can be working together, including the UN, to be able to flag uh, preventatively when certain situations are likely to occur. Um, and finally, on the kind of hate speech side of things, Uh, I think we need more human rights audits of uh, how the platforms are working in these countries and publication of the findings of these audits. Um, So that's something we we definitely need. Uh, In terms of uh, the disinformation kind of side of the spectrum, what we see as being two really important policy innovations are, one, that there needs to be an overlay of corrections Um, where there are viral pieces of misinformation that are being spread on the platform and that are independently fact-checked. Those corrections need to be overlaid on those pieces of misinformation for any prospective users who will see that information, and also for those who have already seen the misinformation. And the platforms have the ability to do that. Um, Secondly, uh, something we call detox the algorithm, we need to look at the behavior of bad actors and really think about how to downgrade uh, actors, pages, groups that are serial misinformers, um, and also to demonetize actors that are seeking to profit, uh, either through advertisements um, or online merchandise, uh, with their hate and misinformation. So I'll I'll just end there. And I'll I'll speak a little bit later about uh, different tactics that can be used in respect of these different policy solutions.
2: Um, thank you, uh, Mitali. That was a, a detailed um, response. Um, I particularly um, really uh, identified with, with your example um, the problems with AI and, and have enough human content moderators that can speak a local language. Very often we see platforms um, are, are created, people can sign up, but there aren't any, the AI doesn't understand the local languages or there's on a human content moderator. So it becomes a wild west and, and purveyors of online hate just take advantage of it. Um, I would now like to turn uh, back to Chris Tuckwood. And uh, Chris, we're going to take a little different uh, move here. But I'm going to ask you, we've talked about the bad aspects of technology. But I'd like to reframe this and ask you more about how can,
3: how can technology be used as a tool for positive change? Yeah, sure. So I've got quite a few points written down here, which might be hard to all fit through in uh, you know, four or five minutes. Um, fortunately, uh, Mitali did a good job of sort of leading into a lot of what I had to say, uh, particularly around some of the limitations of technology and, and the human factors involved. Um, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the biggest advantages that we have in terms of what technology can do to address this problem, comes in uh, monitoring. So again, you know, not to to rehash all of that, but the potential that we have right now for uh, observing not just what individual actors are doing in terms of um, propagating hate speech, but also looking at what large groups of people, societies in the aggregate are doing in terms of uh, taking on those views uh, is is pretty much unprecedented. Um, So while social media does um, indeed Increase the scale of this problem. It, it does simultaneously enable greater capabilities for understanding and then countering the problem, or you know at least in, informing potential solutions. Um, of course, uh, as the as the previous uh, speaker mentioned, uh, online hate speech is uh, potentially a really useful early warning indicator, uh, and that's the that's the fact um, basically that led us into doing this kind of work with our hate based platform. Um, you know, if we're able to really understand how the prevalence of uh, this of hate speech is changing in a society over time and uh, also looking that, at that in conjunction with you know, various other uh, data points, then it's potentially possible to uh, quantify to some degree rising or, or falling levels of, of risk for violence and mass atrocities in a given place and time. It is again, and and not to repeat too much of what the previous speaker said, uh, it's important to understand the limitations though, especially when it comes to to automation uh, or artificial intelligence. Uh, Those two not necessarily always being the same thing, but they they get used uh, kind of interchangeably a lot. But being a human problem You know, being a human problem, as we've been saying, uh, hate speech involves a lot of nuance. Uh, For example, linguistic and cultural contexts. I'm sure we can all think of um, various words uh, or or phrases maybe from our, our own parts of the world that uh, if spoken by one, you know, group of people is not hateful, if spoken by another group of people is considered hateful or, you know, used in a certain way uh, could be hateful or not hateful, etc. Um, I'll leave everyone to think of their own uh, sort of examples of that. So getting machines to recognize that in uh, in a meaningful way, in the same way that the average human can do is, is still very challenging. Uh, again, especially when we factor in the Hundreds of languages, and then uh, you know dialects, and also constantly evolving uh, context for that sort of thing around the world. Um, so I think when it comes, and this kind of leads on from the the early warning point, but it's important to understand that monitoring is not just monitoring for its own sake, but it really should inform some kind of response. And uh, technology, of course, can also be the the venue for that that response. Um, and it, it enables a sort of constant judgment or rather an adjustment uh, of our responses um, that wasn't necessarily possible in the past because we can see almost in real time, uh, theoretically, how how public sentiment uh, is, is changing. And, and I think I'll close off just with a caveat in terms of um, where we should be careful. So a topic that often comes up is uh, although it's not always called censorship, is essentially uh, censorship. And uh, of course, that means very different things when it's being done by, let's say, a private company on their own platform versus a a government body or something like that. Uh, And it's not to say that all censorship is necessarily uh, bad, but it's also not always the best uh, response. Now, certainly unquestionably, companies should be living up to their own community standards. Obviously, they should also be obeying the laws of the land and and basic just ethical and moral principles in terms of policing the content on their platforms. And there's no question that any content that directly incites uh, violence or or something along those lines um, needs to be removed promptly. And there are also, of course, legal consequences that have a role to play there. Um, however, broader censorship can have unintended consequences, and this is where we have to be careful about how we use technology to try and it be a tool for positive change. Because sometimes that positive change uh, can can backfire. So, uh, one thing uh, that I'll mention is just that there's the potential when we shut down with people that have uh, hateful or incipiently hateful views, um, there's the possibility of uh, just increasing polarization and actually hardening extremist views, because that kind of response can, can reinforce uh, the often sort of conspiratorial thinking um, or the feelings of persecution uh, that those individuals may have that's driving their hate. And then the other is that uh, assuming that they continue to be sort of active proponents of certain hateful viewpoints, it can actually push those hateful actors uh, into other venues that are hard, harder to monitor, um, essentially leaving us kind of blind to the the situation. Um, so the best approach um, both in, technologically and non-technologically, however it works out in in practice, is to look at effective counter messaging. And although it's a slower process than we might want to um, see happen, uh, we really need to find ways of engaging and shifting uh, people's views, the majority of people's views on these sorts of things, rather than potentially, um, driving further, further extremism. So I'll leave it there. There's a lot more to be said on that topic, but if anyone's interested, we could always get into that during the question period later.
2: Thank you, Chris. Um, and I, I think you've made an important point about as we try to move the dial and, and, and deal with online hate speech that we also have to be careful that we um, don't overreact because there could be some unintended consequences. You know, like you said, censorship, but also um, limiting people's freedom of expression, um, freedom of opinion, all fundamental human rights. So we have to get, get this right and and, um, and make sure we don't overreact. Um, I would like I think I think now is the time I've got two more questions for other panel members. And this is really uh, about the audience listening to us about what you can do. Um, we have people in the audience that are working for international organizations, working for NGOs, working for national governments. We have academics. Uh, thought leaders. So, my first question um, would be to uh, Siddhita. Siddhita, what mechanisms can be used by states, civil society, and the private sector to counter online hate?
4: That's a a million-dollar question. And I think that, um, uh, you know, as Chris said before, and so did Mitali, I mean, in the end, and the way we view it at the global center i mean hate speech is emblematic of societal concerns it's a symptom and you know we can tackle it at a um, at a level which is digital through technology platforms but in the end when it comes down to it it is about you know states and and individuals and civil societies Thinking about this as essentially a large human rights problem, so the way you sort of view it is holistically in you know, a human rights-oriented, justice-oriented um, measures, and and they would include countering discrimination, marginalisation. Um, creating mechanisms that think about intergroup you know how to mitigate intergroup tensions um, including strengthening legislative and institutional frameworks that guarantee principles of non-discrimination from justice from various different um, aspects to ensuring the presence of various communities in political and public office and investigating all cases of discriminatory behavior or dangerous public discourse and that is a very important place to start with because. you know, social media in the end is a means, is a means to propagate a certain hate. But these problems are existing in society and we need better mechanisms to mitigate those tensions, which we do not have. Um, and I mean, and it's also getting harder in the environment that we lived in. I said that in my previous response that it's not about a particular uh, country it's it's a global problem right now we've heads of states literally um, employing hate speech for um, political gain and hate speech flourishes in a climate of impunity um also with uh, social media there is a level of um, anonymity there's a physical and mental dis- distance and as a result of which, at no personal cost you can uh, continue to uh, spread a lot of hate but i i think that it's also important to note here that it's not just on an individual level that people who hate then find other people on online and then you know from there it just team roles i mean there is organization behind it and the and and the countries that i know better i mean in india there is an entire IT cells by the big political parties which are dedicated to um, spreading a certain narrative through the, the social media platforms. That's the case with Cameroon. I mean, we have seen that. That's the case with Burundi. So there is a lot of organization. It's just not, I mean, you know, as Chris said that in the in the context of earlier crises, you needed organization. That organization still exists. So uh, I will leave the the recommendations on on tech companies because I think Natalie and Chris are much more qualified to speak on that. Um, but I think education can play an important role. Um, given that this problem is becoming more and more prevalent, we I mean as society organizations I mean in the education system it's harder um, to bring about changes depending upon the changing context. But um, civil society organizations should do more work on on what is hate speech what is dangerous speech essentially um i mean you know the un has developed different um guidelines of understanding what is hate speech what is dangerous speech and and these are important to look at because we also don't want the other route which governments are taking, that in order to suppress certain kinds of narrative, narratives, there are um, attacks on freedom of expression and, and democratic values. So it's important to look at the Rabat plan of action, which lays out sort of six criteria of how you understand dangerous speech. And those criteria are the, you know, the social and political context, the status of the speaker, intent to incite the audience against a target group, content and form of the speech, Extent of its dissemination and likelihood of harm, and including um, and including imminence. So there's there are a lot of uh, uh, these guidelines out there which can be helpful. And I just want to end with the fact that, and also I mean, social media companies, as Matali said, they have just been reactive. I mean, they're not proactive. Um, they're not been include. I mean, they're not following sort of um, the broader human rights principles. And I mean, again, there's guidance on that with human rights and business principles developed by the so there's a lot out there which which we could collectively uh do but it's important to recognize that it's a societal problems the solutions for them don't lie on just the means of how hate is spread but why hate is being spread the root causes of it uh, and that's how i would want to uh, think about what can be done thank you
2: thank you savita that was um Really interesting. And I, I, I thank you for mentioning the robot plan of action. We'll share that uh, on our social media um, platform so other people can see that. Um, I'd also add for the audience who don't know that the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights have something called the BTEC project, which is engaging um, businesses on human rights issues. And they're really focusing on uh, really the digital space and social media companies. So that's perhaps another um, multilateral area that that uh, uh, that, the GAMAC its members can engage with. Um, so I have a final question for Mitali, and I think um, we really can learn a lot here because you work for Avaz, which is such a, a large global organization. Um, so my question for you is, what are some advocacy or mobilizing tools available to regulate online hate speech?
1: Thanks, Kyle. Um, I, there's a lot to say here. I'm going to pick up from what Savita just ended with, which is the robot plan. I think multilaterally, there's a number of tools um, that have been developed and that really need to be translated uh, into advocacy for both governments and for platforms. Um, because I think right now, Uh, from our discussions with platforms, you know, they tend to talk about their their standards as being and their policies as being um, compliant with international standards. But when they're talking about international standards, it's a really narrow slice of the international standards that are out there. And so I think we need to be kind of infusing more of the Rabat Plan. Um, the Racial Discrimination Treaty is another one. I know that the UN Special Rapporteur on Racism has just come out with some interesting reports on digital, uh, emerging digital technologies and structural racism. Um, so there's a number of things where, a number of areas where I think we can strengthen the internal policies of platforms and indeed um, push governments to, to adopt uh, facets of that as well. In addition, I think that national regulation is a critical space that we need to be invested in. Now, of course, um, the rejoinder to that is always well, you know, you see governments weaponizing regulation to go after. you know, uh, dissenters of uh, of the government and so forth, and that is true. I mean, where we're talking about government as being one of the actors here sowing the seeds of hate and disinformation, that is problematic. But I do think that there are a number of uh, governments where uh, there's really good uh, there's really good processes in place. There's good momentum in place that we should be capitalizing upon and really pushing to make sure that uh, thoughtful calibrated regulation that balances the competing values of democratic values and uh, expression are put into place. And so, for example, the Digital Services Act in Europe, the Online Harms Bill in the UK, um, and so forth. Uh, There's also the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which has been introduced in the States and other kinds of legislation around the world that I think we should have an eye on and we should be inputting into. In addition, I think that, uh, and Savita talked about education, I think, um, and Chris, about counter-messaging, this notion of inoculation, I think, is a really critical one. How can we inoculate the public to really um, be resilient to these messages of hate, to be resilient to the impacts of disinformation? So thinking about that inoculation and resilience project as a distinct one, I think, is important. I think in, in respect of the public, you know, I haven't been in a lot of spaces where there's been an emphasis put on mobilizing public opinion, creating a movement of people around the world who both understand what's going on and are really demanding change. And that as a vase is something that we we do routinely. And I really Think that this needs to be imported into this space of really activating the masses of people around the world to understand and act upon what is happening and not leaving this to self-regulation by by companies that are not regulated. Um, I think also another tactic that we're using uh, is that we have been trying to generate a movement of survivors of hate survivors of misinformation so we have been in touch with an increasing number of people who are then um, really central to advocacy that we're doing advocacy with governments advocacy with platforms, where they tell, they share their narratives, where they share their stories. And I think there's no substitute for that, the power of that kind of storytelling to really influence change. So I think really continuing to generate the movement of survivors and to support the organizations that organize those survivors. Um, Again, uh, you know, another tactic is of course, to continue with the investigative the investigative reporting of what's happening on these platforms, generating reports, uh, getting media coverage, because unfortunately, um, often these platforms are really only responsive uh, when there's bad media. And so I think we do need to continue to invest in that tactic of uh, investigations, reporting, and and media coverage, uh, but not to the exclusion of everything else. Um, new legal paradigms are necessary. Um, as a lawyer, I'm often uh, appalled at the lack of legal mechanisms to be able to really, uh, uh, you know, hold these platforms to account for what's happening, um, on them. And so I think we need to be thinking about new legal paradigms. I won't get into different, uh, legal theories, but I will just offer one, which is, I think there's a really interesting freedom of thought kind of legal paradigm that's emerging, particularly in Europe, that we should really be, um, Uh, aware of, and I think it could really go far in really helping us think about how particularly algorithmic amplification is impacting our ability as informed citizens to think and to um, respond and make informed decisions and create informed opinions. Um, And then finally, if I may, um, I would just encourage people uh, who are watching this to vote. we know that disinformation is a uh, has been used to suppress elections and to prevent from free and fair elections. And so I would say to those uh, viewers around the world who have elections coming up, uh, just get out and vote um, and uh, help to ensure that the democratic values of whatever country you're living in uh, continue uh, so that we can continue uh, ahead with all of these other tactics. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mitali. Um, I think now we'll go to questions from the audience, and I think there's a perfect segue. You talked about in democracies, what can be done uh, as citizens? How can we put pressure on elected officials? But we have a, a question here from Mohammed uh, Funa, who's asked the following. He says, in undemocratic context, there's often the danger that regimes claw back on freedom of expression online under the guise of countering hate speech. What checks can be put up to counter this? So this is the uh, more of an authoritarian regions that will often yeah, will use this to counter democratic activists and so forth. Who would like to maybe uh, first take a uh, chime in on this on this issue?
1: I'll take a stab at it. Uh, thank you, Mohammed, for the question. I think this is exactly this is very critical. And we have seen that weaponization of regulation and the enforcement of regulation being used in several countries around the world. Um, I think there's no easy answer to this. I do think that what it means is that we have to sit down and really think about the competing values and help to create legislation uh, and to advise on enforcement in a way that balances those competing values. This is where I think UN documents, the Rabat plan, And other treaties and standards that have been developed really comes in uh, because uh, those can be, I think those principles can be seen as being uh, loyal to nothing else but to human rights, to the human rights corpus and discourse. And so to the extent that we can tether national laws and the enforcement of those laws to international human rights standards, I think that's probably our best bet.
2: Thank you, Mitali. Would any of our other speakers, Savita or Christopher, would you have any comments on, on uh, that question?
4: I mean, I, I think that Mitali answered that that very very well. And Mohammed, that's a million dollar question again. I mean, you know, in a, in a demo uh, in an autocratic society, how are you able to uh, express yourself? And um, and I would answer that by flipping it a little bit and saying that. Um, you know, the lack of action on hate speech in liberal democracies has been because of the fact that there's such a grave fear that any kind of action will lead to um, constraints on freedom of expression. I mean, in even in the multilateral fora, for a very long time, in the last three, four years, we've started talking about this, but for a very long time, the fear was that if you start talking about hate speech or dangerous speech, um, then that in the end will curtail or give people excuses um, to curtail freedom of expression. And this also also is not true only in, in more sort of autocratic countries, but even in democratic countries, there is, given that these platforms are a place for, you know, uh, Propagating different narratives. I mean, what you're seeing now is that one side will accuse the other, and and it's the social media platforms that get accused. I mean, and I have seen it, and I know the uh, India the best, uh, and I have seen this play out there uh, very very frequently, in which the sort of the right wing Hindu party is uh, blaming the uh, the blaming Twitter for giving more through its AI, giving more purchase to the left wing narrative and the left wing says the same thing. So I think that it, it, this is such a um, unique time that we're living in and these unique challenges that we are uh, facing that it has to be thought about outside of just the context of how we are regulating tech companies. And I'm coming back to this again and again, because I feel that all of this hate um, is a reason, I mean, is a, is a is an outcome of just societal um, breakdown, a breakdown on consensus on democracy, a breakdown on consensus on dissent essentially worldwide. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Uh, Chris, do you have any comments or should we move to the next question? Uh, I think we can, we can move okay. on. So uh, question. a question here from Daniel, uh, um, sorry, just jumped up. Daniel uh, Sturgis, who says, what countries have robust hate speech legislation that can provide a framework for a way forward would anyone like to take a stab at this question
3: um i think maybe uh, the others might have more to say on it but uh, i'll hold up without particularly uh, commenting on whether or not their approach is uh, is good uh, germany is often held up as uh, being an example that's on the very sort of um extremely anti-hate speech, so to speak, uh, end of things in terms of legislation or, or regulation. Um, they have some very stringent requirements uh, in terms of what, for example, social media platforms are required to do uh, in uh, in the case that, uh, you know, an, an instance or a, a piece of hate speech is reported on one of their platforms. And there are very severe financial penalties attached to uh, not taking action to remove that kind of content. Um, so I, that's just one thing that I would throw out there. Uh, I'm not necessarily uh, an expert on that sort of thing, and, and certainly not on the specifics of how that works in, in Germany. But if anybody's looking for an example, uh, and, of you know, very robust kind of uh, legislation on this and wants to research that more, I would say that Germany is is at least a commonly cited example.
1: I um, I, I would just all, uh, add to that that to uh, Daniel um, that I believe it's important not only to look at hate speech legislation um, for the reasons we've mentioned before, but also to look at. Uh, regulation of disinformation. Because of that fluidity um, on the spectrum of the kind of speech that ultimately can lead to to violence and to mass atrocities, I think we need to be thinking about the regulation of both. Um, And when you start to talk about disinformation, it becomes a little bit of a different calculus than hate speech, because uh, often it's, it's not being talked about as removal of content but downgrading of uh, content or correction of content. And that starts to uh, raise different issues. And so I'd just say that, uh, you know, let's just to keep an open mind of uh, a broad series of things that need to be regulated and that there are competing concerns uh, in each category. Um, But I don't think it's impossible to do. Uh, I, I think that from what we've seen, Europe seems to have a good handle at the EU level of uh, this Digital Services Act um, in in how they're thinking about both disinformation and hate speech.
2: Thank you, Mitali. Um, So we're gonna take one more question from the audience because we're now running close to the uh, end of our event. We've got about six minutes left. We also have um, a colleague from Columbia who's gonna present uh, an artistic graph of, of our discussion today. But I'm gonna take this last question uh, from Galit Ariel. Um, Galit asked, what are your thoughts about the effectiveness, sorry, what are your thoughts about the effectiveness of hashtag activism with recent examples of proud boys trolling from the case of the US? uh, Would anyone like to talk about hashtag activism? Too, Too difficult, perhaps.
3: I'm part,
2: that? It's too difficult of a question, perhaps.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a big question. I'd be happy for someone else to, to take it on in depth if possible, but I would say um, I'm a bit in terms of its offline uh, impact. I'm a bit skeptical uh, of, of its effectiveness, but that being said, uh, if we're talking, I'm not familiar with the like specific Proud Boys example being shown there. If this is, um people sort of hashtagging the proud boys to drown out their their trolling with other content Um, but i'll say it's an interesting approach and you know has the potential to uh to at least temporarily um silence or diminish the the prominence of of hateful narratives online but i don't i don't have any data to back this up but i'm just i'm skeptical that it has any kind of uh deep enduring kind of uh, impact on the sort of dynamics that we're talking about here?
1: Uh, As perhaps I can respond as an American (laughs) who's quite concerned about the Proud Boys. um, I think the uh, if if I'm understanding the correct uh, question correctly, this was the attempt to kind of uh, appropriate the Proud Boys uh, title and to really celebrate kind of LGBTQ love um, and to kind of come up with a counter message of sorts. So I think it really goes to that bucket of, of kind of counter messaging and the inoculation that we were speaking about earlier. And so to that extent, I think it's, it's, it's important. And it's, Fantastic, Uh, and it's it's just a pleasure to see as a user that Proud Boys starts to take on multiple meanings and not just uh, uh, you know extremist militant group. Um, But I think it you know so I I think it's an important thing. I think it's important for user resilience and citizen resilience to have those counter messages. Uh, But I do think it you know I agree with um, Chris that it doesn't necessarily diminish the severity of the kind of problem in the first place and and what we need to do to really effectively deal with those right-wing militia groups.
2: Thank you, uh, Mitali. So um, uh, I just would like to take this time now to thank Mitali, Savita and Christopher for joining us today, for sharing your expert knowledge. You all look at this from a a different angle and I think you all brought it together and, and explained all the complexities of this issue, which is, as we said, a global issue. Um, so I would like to thank you, um, no further things to add, um, many issues that I'm working on. So let's hope we can collaborate after this event. I think there's a lot of space for collaboration with GAMAC and its partners. Um, I'd also, um, would, uh, like to say that, uh, there's two more, um, online sessions we're going to organize. The next one will announce a date soon, but it's going to be, uh, particularly about how social media was used against the Rohingya in Myanmar. So that's going to be a fascinating, really deep Discussion into particularly how how Facebook was a platform uh, used. So so keep um, uh, so so please stay with us for the next one or sign up for the next one. We'll be sending emails out so that you can register. Um, and at this stage, I would like to um, ask our, our, our distinguished speakers to leave the screen, and we're going to pass over for the closing bit of this event to our colleague Zoma. Uh, Pateleta, um who is in Colombia, has been listening to this event um, and has been taking notes and listening words and putting together uh, an artistic graph of all words that we were uh, that all the all the topics we were discussing. So um, Zoma, I think you're now you now have the microphone. I'm going to pass to you.
5: Oh and yes, um, can you hear me?
2: Yes, we can hear you.
5: Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you all to all of the speakers and thank you for the organizers. This has been an amazing, um, here some of these perspectives that, um, that affect everyone. So I'm going to share my screen and um, share with you some of um, the, some of the images, some of the thoughts. Um, let me just try this again. Application window, so I need um, Zoom. Um, to, let me just, um, Sorry about that, it seems to be oh, see. a bit temperamental. So let me just try one more time. And if this um, doesn't work, we will make sure to share the images with um, with you, with all the participants um, to make sure that um, you have access to, to the image. But um, if I can just...
2: Um, I think it just appeared. I think we have to add this to the stream.
5: Is that working now?
2: I see it on the screen.
5: Yeah, perfect. Technology sometimes um, plays tricks on us, as we have been discussing today, Uh, technology, friend or foe. So um, can we see the image now?
2: Uh, I think it just switched to another image.
5: Okay, let's just try this. I'm sorry about that. Um we will give it another go and hopefully this time it will work. Is that yeah, yeah we can see it now? We can see it now. Perfect. So um Wow, well, going through some of the some of the key thoughts and uh, concepts that were shared today, and that um, are perhaps for people like you who deal with these issues on a regular basis, are very obvious. But for a common citizen, I guess um, it's not so so evident. So um, the uh, challenge of both. Um, the challenge of hate speech and, and, and understanding that is not that it's a symptom of, of society, of an underlying issue, like a, the tip of the iceberg, but what's behind, what's underneath, it's what really causes um, these problems. Um, so that it's a it's in essence a, a human problem, not a technological one. However, looking at the positive sides so or the possibilities of technology, um, one of the things a, the fact that it allows monitoring, um, and it makes it possible uh, for for um, organizations, institutions, uh, governments to to understand it better, to monitor it, to follow it, um, and and this this marriage or this interaction, very strong interaction that shouldn't be forgotten of hate speech with misinformation. It's like how those two things. Actually, work together. That's kind of summarized in this in this image and this um, message. Um, if hate speech loads the gun, misinformation pulls the trigger. So it's that that combination that becomes really volatile. And um, seeing that this is really a global challenge is not is not something that happens in developing countries, developed countries. Um, is not. Um, exclusive to one region of the world, we've had issues in places in Europe, Cameroon, India, Burundi, USA, and and the rest of the world. Really, this is this is this is something that everyone um, should be uh, thinking about and trying to see uh, issues. And when we look at um, at solutions, um, when we were then um, was looking at this last element of solutions, which I'm still working on. Um, So there's ideas and suggestions from the speakers around um, national regulation, movements of survivors, education, advocacy, civil society groups, but all of them really understanding that the problem is not necessarily technology. Technology might be uh, the way in which becomes um, amplified or crystallized, but the, the underlying problem is a societal one. So um, these are some of the key concepts and ideas from today's um, session. I'll finish with some of the um, final uh, reflections that were shared um, in the session. And the organizers will make this um, image available to all of the participants as well. And the intention with this is that this image serves as a tool to, to continue these important conversations that it serves as a reminder of what was shared here today and also as a tool to be able to continue the conversation um, towards action uh, for this very important issue. Um, So with this, I'll then pass it back to, um, to you, Kyle.
2: Zulma, thank you very much. That was um, a fascinating uh, uh, work that you did. I can't wait to see uh, the final product. And we will, um, when we have that, we will share it with everyone who, who attended or watched this event. We'll share it on social media. Um, and last but not least, I just want to thank everyone today on behalf of my colleagues at MIGS, the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Studies, and on behalf of GAMAC, we really thank you for joining us and hope that you stay tuned for our third session coming up. Um, next month. Thank you.